And the stories about each generation, they're united by two main themes. So first, each generation of Abraham's family is marked by repeated failure. They just keep making really bad decisions that mess up their lives and that put God's promise in jeopardy. However, God remains faithful to them. He keeps rescuing them from themselves and reaffirming his commitment to bless them and bless the nations through them despite their failings. So the Abraham stories. God had promised Abraham a huge family, but on two different occasions, he's afraid for his life because other men are attracted to his wife. And so he denies that he's even married to her, which creates, of course, all of these problems. And not only that, Abraham and his wife, Sarah, they can't have children. And so Sarah arranges for Abraham to sleep with one of their servant girls, which also creates all of these problems in the family. But each time God bails Abraham out, and in chapters 15 and 17, God even formalizes his promise to Abraham with an official commitment called a covenant. This is a classic scene. God invites Abraham to look up at the night stars and to count them. And he says, that's how numerous your family is going to be. And despite all of the odds, having no kids and no way to have any at the moment, Abraham looks up in the sky and simply trusts God's promise. And God responds by entering into a covenant with Abraham, promising that he will become a father of many nations, that God's blessing may come to the whole world. God asks Abraham to mark his family with a sign of the covenant, circumcision of all the male boys in the family. This is a symbol to remind them that the fruitfulness of their family is a gift from God. And so Abraham has lots of kids eventually, and he dies at a good old age. Now, the Jacob stories play out these themes even more dramatically. From birth, Jacob lives up to the meaning of his name, which is deceiver. He cheats his brother Esau out of his inheritance and blessing, and he does it by deceiving his old blind father, no less, and then he just takes off. Would you pray with me? Almighty God, pour out your Holy Spirit on me and on all of us who are gathered here. Lord, take my words and make them yours. Take all of our thoughts and make them yours. And take our hearts and set them on fire for you. Father, we love you. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So we're diving right into Genesis 28, chapter 10. So this is right after Jacob has cheated his brother out of everything, and he's fleeing for his life. So chapter 28, verse 10. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. 
Let me ask you this. Do you, when you wake up in the morning, remember your dreams? Yeah, some people do, some people don't. I never do. Um, I'm one of those people, I just, my, I never, I always know that I had a dream. I might know that it was weird, but I never actually, like, recall the details. Um, most people don't remember most of their dreams. Right? Only the ones that are, like, truly strange or the ones that come to us during unusually stressful times. And Jacob is in the middle of an unusually stressful time. He's got a lot on his mind at this point, right? He's leaving the promised land. He's on the longest journey he's ever taken. This is the farthest away from home he's ever been. And he's probably got a lot of processing to do. He may not even realize, being wrapped up in all this other stuff going on, he may not realize that he's more or less in the same location where his grandfather Abraham first arrived in the promised land and built an altar. And it's not hard to imagine that one of the stones he picked up and put his head on was a stone from the crumbling altar that Abraham might have built when he first arrived. Sometimes the dreams that we have are just nothing more than, than our brains working through the things going on in our lives. They're just subjective processing, and, and it's just a good outlet for, for all the stuff working its way through our subconscious, and there's nothing to them. There's no meaning to them. But sometimes dreams mean more. God does indeed communicate via dreams, and, and this is not like something he stopped doing when the biblical authors laid down their pens. We should actually expect for God to communicate to us this way, but we don't. Somewhere along the line, the, the idea of God speaking to us through dreams, it was sort of relegated to this realm of, of, pa of the past and, and this idea of sort of legendary figures of history. And anyone who comes to you now and says, look, God told me to do this in a dream, um, you're not going to react well, right? I mean, <laughs> you're not going to instinctively go, oh, God told you this in a dream, we should do it. You'll probably assume that they're either crazy or that, there's some, that they're lying to you outright, right? that they've got some sort of hidden agenda. They're trying to convince you of something that you shouldn't do, right? And, and to be fair, there are people who do that. But we've got to move on from that mindset. God still speaks to us in this way, but if we're not open to the idea that God might be trying to talk to us through our dreams, we're going to miss it. Because again, most of us don't pay much attention to our dreams. I wonder all the things God told you that you've missed because you just weren't paying attention. It doesn't mean every dream that seems meaningful is a communication from God, but it does mean that God might have things he wants to tell you in a dream. And we miss out on them. I've, I've even read one author who keeps a journal by his bedside so that if he wakes up from a dream in the middle of the night, he can jot down what it was because he, like me, forgets all of his dreams. So that way in the morning he can go through and look back and he can pretty quickly figure out if this was just his brain doing nonsensical things or if God was trying to speak to him. Now, I don't do that because I'm lazy and I like to sleep through the night. But, you know, you do you. The, the point is, God reveals things to us in all sorts of ways. Dreams are one of those. And in this case, what Jacob sees is uh, ladder, stairway, ramp. No one's really sure how to translate the word there because what it literally refers to is a highway. But the imagery is of a highway that's going up to, like, highway to heaven, right? The opposite of the ACDC song. <laughs> so it's a stairway to heaven. You didn't know Led Zeppelin was a Christian band. Um, but actually... <laughs> Whatever it is, highway, stairway, ladder, whatever, it connects heaven and earth. It's, it's a way for God's angels who, you could, you could actually just describe them as God's aides, 
the people who aid God in carrying out his mission, taking his orders and taking them out into the world. It's a way for God's angels to move between the two. And so what this dream is doing for Jacob is it's opening his eyes to a hidden reality, something that's going on around him all the time. God is continually involved in the world. He's constantly sending his aides out on missions. You can't see them, but they are at work. Now at this point, Jacob has uh, lied to his father, cheated him, He's taken God's name in vain. He's tricked his older brother, who is far bigger and stronger and better with weapons than he is, uh, out of both his inheritance and his blessing. He's alienated his family, and he's now fleeing for his life and leaving the promised land. So you can imagine he's a little nervous. He's anxious. He's worried. And God steps in to reassure him. And that's a little difficult for us because it kind of feels like God should be stepping in to slap him upside the head, right? He's lying, he's cheating, he's stealing, he's running for his life. I mean, this is not the sort of person you think God should be stepping in. No, no, it's all okay, buddy. I got you. Don't worry. And in fact, what we're going to see all throughout the Old Testament, but especially in, in the book of Genesis as it tells us the story of Jacob and Jacob's sons is they're not the best people. Imagine, imagine one of the heroes of your national history being a man whose name means the deceiver. It does not make sense. And so often people read these stories of, of the patriarchs in the Old, Old Testament and they wrestle with the fact that these men are clearly doing things that are profoundly immoral and, and they struggle with it because we tend to assume if you read about a person who's a major figure in the Bible, um, who, who clearly has the favor of God and is blessed by God, we tend to assume they must be a good person. And then we run into all kinds of problems when they do things that we know are wrong. And, and the fact is, that's not how the story works. What you're going to see with Jacob is that he's a liar, he's a cheat, he's manipulative. And it's going to come back to bite him, especially when he has 12 sons with four different women, uh, which is a bad idea in and of itself, right? There's no way that works out well. But then his sons use every bit of, of lying and manipulation that they learned from watching their father to sell their youngest brother into slavery and convince their father he's been eaten by wild animals. These are not fun people. <laughs> they are not moral examples for us to follow. In fact, you know, I mean, Abraham and Isaac make some mistakes along the way, but, but you know, they generally you know, they, make, they have human failings, but for the most part, they act in ways that we can, we can tend to understand. Once you get to Jacob, you start to think, why on earth would God pick these people? And, and that cycle of constantly making enormous mistakes and needing God to bail them out will continue right up to the moment when Jesus walks out of the tomb. It never stops. It is the history of Israel. They make mistakes, God bails them out. Over and over and over and over again. You see, you notice that God does not reassure Jacob that he is pleased with Jacob. 
He doesn't come in and say, oh, no, no, it's okay. You're acting exactly the way I want you to act. He reassures him that God's purposes have not been thwarted. He's in effect saying, Jacob, you can't possibly screw up badly enough to impede my plans. My angels are still at work. Not because you deserve to have me active in your life, but because my work will not stop just because of your stupidity. Which is really encouraging to me. I don't know about you all. But there is encouragement there. We're going to mess up. We will make bad choices. We will do stupid things. We will do flat-out immoral things. We will make snap decisions that turn out to be bad decisions. But we can never be such a screw-up that we will interfere with God's work in the long run. God, God takes that into account when he plans things. And God's involvement in your life is not based on your worthiness. Just like it's not based on Jacob's worthiness. He's pretty clearly not worthy. It's not based on merit. It's based on what God is planning. That's why what comes next is a covenant. God states the commitments he's making to Jacob. He tells him that the promises he made to Isaac and to Abraham are going to apply to Jacob too, even though he's fleeing in shame, even though he's deceitful, even though he's a cheat. And so we pick up in verse 16. This is Jacob responding to God's covenant. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. There is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. He called the name of the place Bethel. But the name of the city was Luz at the first. Then Jacob made a vow saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. So a covenant is not a contract. We all have contracts in life, right? You have a contract with your phone company, right? You pay your phone bill, you have a phone connection. No, no payment, no phone connection, no phone connection, no payment. Ideally, right? We know how contracts work. Pretty clear give and take, pretty clear rules, and there are clauses that, that make it clear how that contract is invalidated. But we have covenants too, and they work a bit differently. Right? If we're married, that's a covenant. And it's different. I'm committed to my wife no matter what, whether she upholds her end of the deal or not. When we took our marriage vows, I didn't say, I commit to you if you'll commit to me. As much as some of us sometimes wish that's the case, it's not how it works. You're committed. Now that doesn't mean that marriage is a one-sided commitment. It's definitely a two-sided agreement, but it can't be described like you would describe a contract because there is no if language in a covenant. There, is, there are no if language in, in marriage vows. But notice that Jacob does not seem to understand the difference. God makes a covenant with him, and he comes back trying to make a contract with God. He treats it like a contract. He has a bunch of clauses he adds to it. In fact, he takes all of God's promises to him, and he turns them into ifs. He says, okay, God, if you'll really do all that, 
then you can be my God. How generous of him. But he's not done. He even goes further, right? If you'll do all these things you said you do, if you give me all the things you said you give me, I'll give you 10%. Fair, right? If, 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 if. You notice that when God told Jacob what he was going to do, there were no ifs. God didn't say, Jacob, if you'll get your act together, stop lying, stop cheating, stop stealing, then I'll take care of you. There were no contingencies in what God offered to him. But Jacob offers a bunch of contingencies back. There's nothing contractual about the relationship that God wants with Jacob, but Jacob certainly wants a contractual relationship with God. He's trying to get the best possible terms for himself, and he's completely missing the point of what God is doing as a result. By adding all of those if clauses, Jacob feels like he's in control. He's got a clear list of do's and don'ts. And the terms of the agreement are, are simple and easy to follow. Do these things, he knows God will be pleased with him. If, if God doesn't do these things, he knows he can walk away. Or so he thinks. But that, that mindset, that doesn't really work in personal relationships. And so it doesn't really work with God. We like the idea of a contractual relationship. Right? We all do the same thing that Jacob does. We try to make deals with God. Right? We say, God, if you'll do X, I'll do Y. I remember distinctly when I, when I first felt a call to ministry, I, I, I did the same thing. I had a, a summer internship at a church at First Methodist downtown. I, I told God, okay, God, if you will get me a job here in the fall when the school year starts, which they did not do at that point time, I said, if you'll do that, then... Then I'll go into ministry. Um, and God got me. Here I am. <laughs> You're stuck with me now. That's what happens when you make deals with God, by the way. It doesn't go well. <laughs> we like to try and set up like, clear rules to follow, a checklist of things. We can just check the box and know, okay, I've checked this box. I'm right with God. I'm good to go. But this story tells us that God sees the relationship a bit differently. God's promises to Jacob, the covenant that he's made with him, it's not contingent on Jacob's behavior. His worthiness is irrelevant. God has no if clauses in the covenant. Now later on, this, the, 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 the agreement gets expanded, things get added on to it. But this is the core of the covenant that God makes with his people. This is the covenant that Jesus fulfills. And there are no contingencies in it. There never were. God adds contingencies about how long they can stay in the promised land. Right? If he's going to give them the land, they have to do certain things to keep it. But the, the core of the promise that through them all the families of the earth shall be blessed. There are no contingencies. There is no way out. It's going to happen. You're along for the ride whether you like it or not. It's happening. That's the covenant Jesus fulfills. 
And when Jesus makes with us a new covenant, it works much the same way. Believe in me, period. No other contingencies. It's not about your worthiness. It's not about what we deserve. It's not about a, a really nice, convenient list of rules that we can easily follow, much as we sometimes wish it was. It's not. There are no boxes to check off other than believe in Jesus. It's not, in other words, a contract. The closest analogy we have is a marriage. This is why the Bible constantly uses marriage imagery to describe the relationship between God and his people. And indeed, we believe that it's part of the actual God-given purpose of marriage to help us understand God's covenant with us better. As marriages serve as an earthly image of the covenant that God made with his people. There is an agreement in a marriage and a covenant. There is an agreement. Each party has responsibilities to the other one. But there are no contingencies. No excuses for not upholding your end of the deal. There are no if clauses. It's two people who vow to commit to one another in all circumstances, regardless of the worthiness of the other person. That's how a marriage works. That's how God intended marriage to work, at least. And it's how Jesus works. The key difference, though, is this, right? When two flawed human beings try to enter into a covenant with each other, um, failure is a possibility, right? We don't always actually fulfill our marriage vows very well. We make mistakes. We have flaws. Sometimes the covenant falls apart. It happens. Because two flawed, sinful people trying to do this together are going to make mistakes, and sometimes it doesn't work out. And we can have grace and mercy in there when that happens. The difference is, when God makes a covenant, it's going to happen. That's what he's telling to Jacob right here. He's, Jacob, look, I know what you're trying to do. You can't get away from me. I'm everywhere, Jacob. You can run from the promised land. I'm going to be there too. You can lie and cheat and steal. We're still doing this. And he's going to say that to each successive generation of Abraham's family. You can sell your little brother into slavery. Guess what? I'm going to work through him over here in Egypt. Nice try. To put it another way, Jesus loves you and there is nothing you can do about it. It's it. God will fulfill his covenant. Full stop. That's how God sees his relationship to us. It's how he wants us to view our relationship to him. Not a contract, but also not something casual. Not something easily entered into and not something that is easily left behind. A serious, lifelong commitment to each other that is not to be entered into lightly and that cannot be easily dissolved. Because the reality is he's already at work all around us. If only we had the eyes to see, we'd see stairways to heaven everywhere we look. And we'd see the angels of God flooding out into the world. He's here with us now. He's working in us and through us now. Not because we deserve it, but because God is on a mission and there is nothing we can do that will stand in his way. We are his covenant people. 
He is committed to us, and there is nothing we can do about it. The only question is, are we committed to him? In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.